0: everybody uh yeah this is our first time thing right we have never done this before but <laughs> it's going to be something <laughs> that we are moving forward to do to get a different like get a more analysis of our podcast episodes basically right um so yeah no we have for a very first what else can i call it like like researcher scout basically persons who have done research on events of the podcast topic previously right so if you have listened to our most recent episode episode 15 right which is episode 5 of season 2 and the women shall lead them antigua's 1858 uprising you know we spoke about the um riot per se that happened in an, on the island of antigua between you know persons in antigua and persons in barbuda Go listen to the episode. If you don't understand the matter about then clearly is a sign of the times. So if you have to go listen to the episode, right? And then forward back. Forward back here, right? So, um, yeah, we had to, had to. We got in contact with um, one of the primary researchers of this event. And we just invited her to come and speak and give a breakdown of the event. Um, Personally, I must say, I never knew about this event um, as I tweeted before, um, I was literally just reading a piece of paper, and um, book up on it, like, it upon like, a piece of, said in the newspaper, and I'm like, wow, this is a thing, nobody told me this, what, no, nobody didn't tell me this, like, I never know about this happened, so, um, yeah, just have a conversation with her and see, um, like, how she got into it, right, so, I have the pleasure of speaking to dr natasha lightfoot Right, she is an associate professor at columbia university um, and she specializes in slavery and emancipation studies um, primarily black identities politics and cultures in the fields of the caribbean atlantic world and african diaspora you know all history stuff right she works in the department of history right but what's even greater about her is that she is the author of Troubling Freedom, Antigua, and the Aftermath of British, British Emancipation, which was published in 2015. And if you if you listen to the previous episode, like you're supposed to listen to the previous episode, honestly, right? You will know that that was the, you know, that that's the bread, the bread and butter. Bread and butter is the word. I don't think that's the yeah. phrase. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's the main source that we use for this podcast right for this podcast episode so having the honor of even seeing her is it, just great and also a fun fact her book troubling freedom the cover of it is the podcast episode um cover because and it was like really hard finding a cover so um dr lightfoot is really great having you so just introduce yourself
1: to our audience you know hello listeners thank you for tuning in i'm just really happy to be here and sharing um with all of you about what makes this history interesting, exciting, um, a teachable moment, shall we say, about the long struggle for freedom in not just Antigua, but the broader West Indies and really the Americas.
0: I understand, that's good, that's good. Mm -hmm. Um, So as I said before, right? Um, I book up on this one piece of paper, like piece of newspaper. I reading, I book up on it, and I'm like, "Whoa, you know." As a Jamaican, I know about Nanny, you know, and her work when it comes to um, leading the 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 force of change for where the Caribbean is today. So I never knew about Antigua, right? And some of my Antigua friends my age, cause I'm Gen Z, they don't know about it either, right? Mm-hmm. And millennials, I mean, like how much. Who did a fight for liberation in the Caribbean, I mean I know about they never tell me about it. Kinda upset. So I just want to know how you came across this story and why the need to pursue this um event and to even write like a book about it, which is a very well written book. You guys should go and read it. But
1: yeah, like why wh- what's the story? Well, um, just to tell you, the book is about 25 years after the 1834 emancipation, and I end it with a chapter. So not the whole book is on 1858, but the last chapter, and I think it's a really interesting way to end the discussion, right? Um, If you see how ultimately the story I'm telling is one of people who are emancipated in Antigua as a people who are trying to really make that freedom worth material returns they want a feeling like every day in their lives they feel free and it's something that really the British colonial officers are doing everything to shut down ultimately they would like freedom to look a lot like slavery <laughs> um so that you just had to change your name only but that you still you know instead of getting not paid you get very little and instead of you know you may um wo- you may work whenever we say you you know you work in these set hours and while you're there, you're within, you know, still the kind of authority that is basically ours to set the tone. So even though it's not 24 hours that you're on call, which is what happens when people were enslaved, the hours that you're working on the estate, you are still being treated like a slave on call at the beck and call of those whites who are running the uh, the sugar estate enterprise, right? So the whole story is one where people, I'm looking at people strategizing every day, how to figure out how to make themselves and their lives feel good. And so I look at a lot of things, like how do people figure out where they're going to live? Because people realize if I stay in these slave barracks, the same white people who own me can still watch my every move, even though I'm free. Um, Do I still want to work for the plantation every day? Sometimes I really think a lot of people just came to the conclusion, maybe I need to work somewhere else. And so that way I could break out of this whole construct where the plantation equals slavery. But for many people, that still wasn't even a possibility. Some people left the plantation and started doing things like have a little table at the market or go become fishermen or things like that, or maybe find a little plot and be able to farm their own land and sell the produce, but a lot of people ended up right back at the plantations because that's the biggest game in town. Antigua is a little island. There's not a lot of land you can settle that you know, dissimilar to a place like Jamaica where there was a lot of unclaimed land. And a lot of people just squatted and became owners by squatters, right? And became a peasantry, right? They kind of, they they really took over their land and they, they became independent agricultural producers in Antigua that really wasn't as easy to do because there just isn't as much land and a lot of the whites who own land they're hoarding it even though they may be you know better served by letting people have a little bit of land and you know figuring out a better way to work that out no they didn't want to see people act in that way that was a little too free for their purposes so here we are the whole book traces a lot of different things. People are trying to figure out, well, should I go to church with these white people or should I continue practicing obia? Should I, you know, can I find ways to take my money and dress a little better in the street Um, when I'm off the, the estate? You know, all kind of things I'm looking at. It's an interesting trace. Some people are looking to educate themselves and their children. So, how I talk about at points how people encounter the education systems that are available, which aren't many and they're not very good. Um, So education in the Caribbean is a long-term struggle too, right? All these different things, how to get a fair wage, how to protect your children, how to live, how to form family, how to just be free in the different ways that people know how. And so ultimately, I talk about how when every single everyday strategy is shut down in one way or another by colonial laws or by white people's everyday practices of exclusion. The next thing that happens, so I'll quote Martin Luther King, a riot is the language of the unheard. That is what exactly is happening in this instance and in many instances of uh, uprisings, both during the period of slavery and in the period right after. And I'll tell you, every single West Indian territory has an uprising that happens within the first 25 to 50 years after the end of slavery, and it's major. It's a major earth-shattering event, and it shows you just how very little actual freedom Black people in the West Indies were were extended. So Antigua's 1858 uprising is one example in a long line of many that extend literally from immediately after 1834 right up until we're talking like the 1870s at least in that period you you just have one on every single island and it's about it's it's a couple of decades (laughs) you know um on average when you look at the so i i keep saying i need to draw this map at some point, but I don't have that type of time right now. I'm trying to still work on yet another book, but we'll, we'll talk about that if there's time. Um, so 1858 <laughs> happened, and these are just people in a pressure cooker. They just find themselves at the, you know, at the the end of a very long struggle and saying, what else can we do, but just start literally destroying things, destroying things and making, a kind of real statement, destroying property, throwing stones at people, really announcing that this anger that's been bubbling up is generational anger. Understand? So what's also interesting about 1858, I found it in an almanac. (laughs) I found the first mention of it. I never knew about it myself. And I'm Antiguan, and I would say by descent. Because technically, I was born in New York, but I was born to Antiguan parents that had migrated to New York in the 1970s. And my entire upbringing in the Bronx was one where I went to school and I went out into the world, and that was the United States. And then I came into an apartment that was Antigua. And then from the time school ended every year, I got put on a plane with my sister to Antigua, to the house where my mother was raised in to sit with my grandmother and learn and be around my people all summer long until the weekend before school opened (laughs) most cases right so I spent a lot of time this was this was a household my experience was one where I we talked a lot about Antigua you know my dad would talk a lot about politics because a lot of his friends were involved in you know, the labor movement, the political party that came out of it, the Antigua Labor Party. He was, you know, so there were things that were happening that he was always aware of. And he and his friends would gather and I would listen to them talk about it. Um, So I always knew about Antigua in the history of that time, like the sort of immediate, say, 40 to 50 years leading up to when my parents came to the United States. I they knew that history down pat so I heard it in snippets and I always knew it but I always noticed they never talked about that longer term history they never really talked much about the period before what I know there was slavery there how come nobody talks about that that's not really a part of the everyday lexicon that's not right exactly and I kept saying but I know this and I always had taken a liking to history in school and became you know I went to um Yale for college and I ended up doing a lot of African-American history. And that pushed me to go to graduate school. And I went into a program at NYU on the African diaspora in the history department at NYU. And that opened up everything for me. And when I did that, I ended up really understanding that the questions I'd always had about Black liberation struggles and that sort of long-term move from slavery to freedom to whatever we are in now, which is still a kind of in many ways a post emancipation state of struggle. I still feel like a lot of the problems we're in in the Americas as black people are because the the processes of freedom were not handled properly when they were in place. So I um I find myself um you know asking these questions and realizing I can get a lot of answers about them if I apply them to the place I'd want to know the most about, which is the place my people are from. So that's how I ended up doing research. And I also just like to have fun. (laughs) I like to lime. I would go with my friends (laughs) who were in Antigua. I would meet them up. I would fly from New York and meet them up in Trinidad for Carnival on a regular basis when I was in graduate school. (laughs) And while I was there, I was still trying to be a student somehow. So I'm in this PhD program, and I'm supposed to be prepared to play math, but I was also in Trinidad trying to go to the Ue Rare Books and Manuscripts Library at St. Augustine, and that is what happened to me. One day, I go there, and it's like the last day it is open before they're about to close for the carnival holiday, and I'm looking at a rare almanac from the 19th century, and that almanac has not things like what you would think an almanac would have. It called itself an almanac, but it's not like stuff on farming and weather and soil and things like that. The almanac was really just a diary of happenings by year around the Caribbean. So it was a a kind of a West Indies, you know, notable events for the 19th century. And so each year they would have something. So like, you know, 1833, parliament passed the, you know, the abolition of slavery law or, you know, 1865, Morant Bay in Jamaica, right? So you have all of these big happenings. And um, I'm used to not seeing Antigua in these kinds of collective, um, you know, things, the kind of collective volumes about the West Indies in general, because Antigua is a little island and Antigua is seen as sort of more, a more kind of insignificant territory in relationship to the territories historically that were seen as more lucrative, more important. To the British Crown, like a Jamaica or Barbados, let's say, right. So, imagine my 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 surprise when I come across a date 1858 and there is a listing for Antigua. I said, hmm, and then the listing says there was a riot in the streets and hundreds of people were arrested and the jails were full. And um, it's described as rabble-rousers, just causing trouble. There's no political designs whatsoever attached to it. And after all of my training and my graduate program to that point, and all of my understanding of how the story of slavery and emancipation was told in the time by white writers, who are the ones who are literate and have access to pen and paper and have access to storing documents, they liked to convince themselves of things that were wholly untrue about what Black people were doing and what their intentions were, right? So they would like to tell themselves you know, fables like, oh, enslaved people were happy, even as they knew they had to pass all these laws to make sure that enslaved people didn't rise up, (laughs) right? So the same thing is true of this post-slavery uprising. They're saying there's no political design to it. Hundreds of people end up in the street in as little a place as Antigua, At the time, there's only about 35,000 people. So 400 people in the streets that's a big number of people (laughs) in in a town that only composes about, at the time, the main town, St. John's, which is the capital of Antigua. There's only about maybe 15 streets on which major business is being transacted. And some of those streets, including the street with the police station, are said to have had hundreds of people on them during this riot. So that's a big deal. So I said, this is definitely political. And that's where I started digging. And that dig became the beginning of my dissertation, which became my book. And in the end, what started happening is that as I started getting more and more information about what happened during this riot, I realized some of the questions were being really uh, pushed toward thinking about how this riot is an example of the story of what happens when freedom is long denied to a people, um so that's the story of how I found this thing and why I cared about finding out about antigua's past and then you know the the question of what happened just when I found what I found it blew my mind. so the other story for those of you that hopefully listened to the podcast previous that there Antigua has another sister island in the twin island nation state now. At the time, it was seen as a kind of colonial, a a collective colonial territory. Um, uh, Barbuda is Antigua's sister island. It is smaller. It is um, just slightly to the north of it. um, And it has a totally different um, history in terms of how enslavement went down. My book talks about that. Um, It was basically a private property. The entire island was run by one family the codrington family same family that is tied to codrington college in barbados if anybody's ever heard of it but they were quite a wealthy family and had a lot of property interests around different islands in the caribbean including barbados Antigua, and Barbuda, and all of barbuda barbuda was a very different island the way it was run and because it was run as private property when emancipation happened the british even forgot to to decree a Barbuda a free island. They did not actually in, include the name Barbuda in the decree. And so it had to be adjudicated after. That's something I mentioned in my book. So the Barbuda is always an afterthought. And the people of Barbuda were laboring only on the behalf of the Codrington. They didn't grow sugar there because they couldn't. The people there were doing all the supplying for the Antigua Codrington plantation. So they did things like lumbering and livestocking and fishing um, and things like that to create a kind of supply colony for what was the big sugar estate in Antigua. Barbudans ended up in, in many ways, like, you know, ended up over in Antigua, sometimes by force, sometimes by choice, because the opportunities were very limited, especially after slavery, as there were less and less ways to make money as sugar itself starts to decline in Antigua. So a lot of Barbudans end up in Antigua. A lot of Barbudans end up in the city of St. John's in a neighborhood where a lot of already working class people had settled um, called Point. And that is how the 1858 riot begins. This, I, It starts with two men who have a fight over jobs at the port because Point is actually right next to the, it still is right next to the present day port where um, barges come in with containers, shipping containers, but also the cruise ships come in. And that port is, you know, a site of a lot of work, especially for the people of Port. In the 1850s, Antigua is economically depressed like crazy. And so people can't find work, people are hand to mouth. And of course that also is a legacy of a broken emancipation process right so here we are there's these people already fighting for work and then all of a sudden these people from another island where they had a a a sort of different identity even though this is all supposedly in one singular community in terms of colonial administration these people live very different lives So when Barbudans come to Antigua and settle in a neighborhood, I think the people in that neighborhood who were Antiguan knew that these Barbudans were somehow different, you know? So they were like their own little enclave inside of the point. And and a guy who was trying to get a job at the port who was Antiguan got mad one night that a Barbudan guy got that job first. And so that led to the two of them breaking out into a fist fight. That fist fight leads to a whole bunch of Antiguans fighting a whole bunch of Barbudans in the defense of the two guys. And then that from there spills out into more days of rioting. And literally what starts out as just two guys fighting becomes a ton of men fighting men from Antigua and Barbuda fighting together and then women. Who are also experiencing specific kinds of economic and social privations that I talk about in the chapters leading up to this one in the book, because I one of my biggest arguments in the book is that no matter what kind of story of broken and you know un, an unfulfilled liberation that is being experienced under British colonialism is happening for all of the people who are freed in Antigua and Barbuda women are especially not free <laughs> that more so than even men women are especially fighting themselves at that intersection of poverty and you know lack of opportunity and also violence against them both by the you know sort of white plantation system and the those who are profiting from it but also even the men in their homes who are already fighting Some of the battle of this racist capitalist system that is excluding them, the one person that they know they can go home and take it out on is women that live with them. And so that's the other thing. And I I had a lot of issues even in writing about that. I didn't know how to write about that. But I knew I wanted to do it in a way that did not speak to a kind of pathology, because I hate when that happens. Oh, Black people are just violent. That's just what they do. No, that's not what I'm interested in at all in perpetuating. My work is to say that these are people who are dealing with structures of inequality that are generations old and sometimes in the fight to live in within that, they're often fighting, find themselves fighting each other. And that's also the truth of the Barbuda-Antigua story in this uprising, that it begins, I say in the end that there are shades of a kind of anti-capitalist, anti-colonial um, ethos in what ends up happening with this riot. But it begins as a riot against people who look just like them. And Tegan start fighting Barbudans first for liberation because they think those are the people that took, as they say in the chant, because that that makes the record afterward, because there's this big trial. And I find, I found that document at the British National Archives this trial record. That's like 300 handwritten pages of interactions between different members of the community who witnessed and or participated in it. And I'm telling you, one of the things they said is that foreigners have come to take bread out of the people's mouths. And you know how that goes. I'm sure you've seen that in Jamaica that people who come from another island or you know anywhere else might be seen as suspicious, Mm -hmm. right? This idea Mm -hmm. uh, that you know, so that's what was happening. People were just angry, and they started out. and the And the interesting thing is, is that I definitely believe the women came to the street with gendered concerns, that their concerns were not exactly parallel to what the men were in the street fighting for. (laughs) Even though they're still in the same riot together, causing the same disturbance of the peace, right? That they may have certain overlapping concerns, but then they had specific ones that were about their struggles to be free as Black women. And what was interesting about it and why I, the first piece I ever wrote on it, was entitled, Their Coats Were Tied Up Like Men, which is what, Davey, you found, the first article you found on this. I can tell you that that phrase is from the colonial um, administrators who are writing down what they they were seeing. And they said, these women who had on these long dresses, like the ones that you see on the cover for the podcast episode, which is the cover of my book, when they took to the street, these women tied up their dresses. Their coats were tied up. And then immediately, what did the colonial administrators say? They were tied up like men. And what does that mean? To me, that speaks to a long history of masculinizing enslaved women and seeing basically Black women's bodies as a certain kind of deviant and grotesque. That these women are fighting in the street. They're unfeminine. That they're in this position of, um, in, that's undignified. Meanwhile, this is British colonialism. There was no way these women could ever be given a place of dignity in that social system, right? But it's still the idea that you could be aiming for something that you were never going to make in terms of a, a target that was always going to change because the British were setting the tone. And so these people, these women are just trying to find a way to make their concerns heard. And they start by attacking Barbudan women. They went in and they dragged women out and they disrobed them and they beat them. And I found it interesting because these are the kinds of incidents I would see recorded of men doing the exact same kind of things to women in individual homes in Antigua in the post-slavery period. So they did what they knew best. The kind of violence that they did, they were doing because they knew how to do it because it had been done to them. Interestingly, Mm -hmm. after a couple of days of finding Barbudians in the point... Oh sorry, I'm just telling the story. I didn't mm-hmm. even realise. You have to stop me if you want me <laughs> 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 to let
0: you have a no, word no, no, you, you 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 can for a bit, so I thought you yeah, stopped talking like like a good five seconds just you can't But um you. yeah, you understand you right. every question that I had, like which is great, <laughs> which is lovely. I'm um, listening of the podcast, and finally year somebody I speak English, I man, man, manua, manua. No, man, you're, like, man, good. Get every day you're good. But <laughs> but you basically answer every question like I had. <laughs> <laughs> but there are two things that I want to two things I want to bring like real quick. Yeah. The first one is, um, and I'll just I have to answer this and ask the next one. But the first one is um a lot of persons don't know about this, which is unfortunate. Um what would you like to see? Or like done? What would you like to 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 have done? Why? What would you like to see happen to the legacy of this woman? Whether that be teaching in schools or oh. celebrating, celebrating, or so. Like, what would you want to be like? You know, what do you like the legacy of these women to be? I would, because be. like I can give you an example like in Jamaica, yeah. um, nanny. Mm-hmm. You know, is is I. Right. So there's this big debate of whether nanny exists or not. Even mm-hmm. if she didn't exist. You understand? Mm-hmm. She represents the Maroons. She mm-hmm. is the representative of the Maroons. Mm-hmm. And then there's the whole story of she catching bullet in our bathroom, exercise, like, of course, you know, but come on. She represents a whole body of people who were the first. Well, the tenors did fight for liberation, but the first black um the first the first fighters of black liberation in Jamaica, right? So that's Nanny, and that's her legacy, and she on the $500 dollar bill. 500 billion in the yeah. She's a national hero, and you know, and there are different legacies throughout. But as I said before, these women like these women, and you, you did mention um, some by name in the book, but what would you like to see their legacy be like in Antigua and Barbuda today, moving forward?
1: Well, I think it's interesting that you bring up Nanny, because I think Nanny, as you said, she's a representative of the Maroons and the fact that women Maroons were there and were leaders, right? Like, the story of the Maroons can't just be a whole ton of men fighting for a liberated space, and then this one woman, who also just happens to be an Obia woman, who also just happens to be, you know, a a rebel leader, who happens to be a real fighter right like she was you know so these are the questions right that you have to ask yourself who else was there who are the unnamed women who stood beside nanny and beside the men (laughs) right (laughs) who stood beside you know all of the kinds of folks who are acknowledged as making that that history of of maroon communities in jamaica happen same is true i think for this 1858 right that there Tons of ordinary women. So I mentioned them by name because they come up in the trial document by name. But the point I want to make is that ordinary people, ordinary women, multiple women can make history. Stop looking for the great man or the great singular woman. There is no singular person. They're never a singular, even if they are the ones to emerge and they're the name on everyone's list. That's just never fully the truth of how they come to be. They're always in community with someone. And so I'd like for these women to be seen as the imperfect heroes that they were, that they are collective, that they were fighting for all kinds of um, gendered privations. They were fighting against those things that both colonialism and patriarchy and capitalism and slavery and racism denied to them. And they fought first against women that looked just like them, but they also stoned policemen and stoned planters and tried to break into the arsenal at the police station to try and create real firepower behind this riot. You understand so this and this was something that was happening as the colonial officers were seeing them beating on them, trying to arrest them, calling them men in their presentation. You understand that all of this is a part of what makes for the strength of the the women who sit in Antigua and Barbuda today, right? Like there's a way that ancestors had to do all of this for you to be here now. I wish that that could be taught in school. It's interesting because we're sitting right now in um, the 16 days of violence against women. And um, I was just on the radio in Antigua uh, um, maybe about what's today? Saturday? So two days ago. Um, no, three days ago. Wednesday. I was on the radio in Antigua on Wednesday for a program. Um, on that di- Antiguans in the Diaspora, and I was speaking. Um, as the first woman to be brought onto that um series, interestingly, and it happened to be Wednesday was the first day of the 16 days of violence against women. And recently in Antigua, there was this story of really spectacular uh, and horrible public violence of a Jamaican woman living in Antigua was um, was slashed to death by her estranged partner. Um, and that I was going to say I'm sure it did make the news back in Jamaica because all of her children are still in Jamaica and she had a grandchild I don't think she was able to, to see. Um, And I thought that that was just a horrible example of the ways that we're still looking at certain kinds of inequalities for women and a certain kind of casual violence that ultimately lays at the feet of Caribbean men to think about how can they really, you know, rethink what is masculinity, what is the way to interact that is, you know, um, more about, Seeing women as humans, right, and as property. That this is a long, and that this sits on a long-standing tradition of dehumanizing all Black people, but especially dehumanizing Black women. Um, so that's 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 what I would like to see happen: is a real kind of, you know, focusing on these on these women as, like I said in the beginning, imperfect heroes. And why they're part of the legacy of our strength as women in the Caribbean now.
0: All right. Um, my next question was going to be about the same UN Orange the World um, campaign to stop sexual harassment, rape, um, the violence against women. I answered that. So, yes. yeah, I really love you. But just like, oh, you yeah, no, knew the question in the my head, and it just flew naturally. I love like, it. But also, like, there's there's an interview. I'm just here listening and learning. Like, I absolutely love that. And love You it. mentioned something. I think, I don't know who actually knows who you knows. But one of the issues I will say, I've lot other issues when it comes to Jamaican history, and how Jamaican history is documented. I believe we have one of the worst documentation of history in the world. Like, mm-hmm. a document. we don't document properly. But I think... When we decided to make Nanny a national hero, the title was Nanny After the Maroons. And I and, and I think I love that After the Maroons. You know? Mm-hmm. The title is there. Even if you can't name the other persons who are in the fight of a struggle, you know the Maroons. And so when it comes to speaking about them, the she's never left out of mm-hmm. the topic of Maroons, like no. Even if I want Maroon anymore, you know, you gotta know Nanny. You know, that that's one thing. And I I I mean, that that's kudos to Jamaica for that, you know, sometimes they make my pro. Sometimes they make my pro. Other times, other times, especially upon like Thursday and Friday. Yeah, tired of the country. But other times, let get me. I rest the day of the week. Love that. And um yeah, it's it's important to say, you know, to to, to just do more research about the right and I hope more names, you know, and, and, and more contribution during the emancipation era um can be known about and researched done about and just documented and presented to the public and the world, you know, for no say, yo, them they year, then they stand, them legacy, is important. And you said in the beginning that that period between 1834 and um the independence era of 1960s in the Caribbean, is like we forget about it. And correct me if I'm wrong, Antigua is the first British colony that didn't, they got emancipation in 1834 and not official, like, 1838, like everyone else, right?
1: Yes, yes, they skipped yeah. the apprenticeship for reasons that I yeah. talk about in the book, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, it, 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 it's, it's, it's a... It's a, it's a it, that, that conversation around that period, that need, like... And you were... Karekin's saying that there were so many riots. Jamaica, one of Jamaica's most famous riots is the murray Rebellion, mm-hmm. and that changed your whole landscape. That changed your whole landscape. And that happened in 1865. Right. <laughs> so that's years after Antigua's own, right? And they were just knocking on the door. They were literally knocking and be like, We want, as black people in this country, oh, all right. And I'm right to the queen. I'll just say, Yo, work harder. And one one incident flew up into the rebellion. And from that rebellion came so many things. There were police force that mm-hmm. came out. Jamaica Conservative a came out primarily because they were supposed to protect white um, white owners and then yeah, police, you know and the we other thing
1: that. that came out of that too, interestingly, is the end of representative government for a very long mm-hmm. time that the whites decided to vote themselves out of existence in Jamaica, they said we will not allow for there to be any more representative government, we want the whole thing appointed by the crown and that is a deliberate move mm-hmm. to stop black people who were becoming closer. They were coming closer and closer to being able to have a real, significant, if not minority, but you know, could possibly even have a majority sway in the um, in the House of Assembly in Jamaica. As far as I know, that that was a big portion of this. It became what was termed crown colony, um, where the crown mm-hmm. decided who got to be the representatives in the government of Jamaica at the time. And that ended up setting the trend for the whole region because between 1865 Mm -hmm. and 1900, every other colony in the West Indies got some form of crown, crown, crown colony just like that. So again, when people, when Black people rise up, the move is always, especially during and especially after slavery too, to try and reduce rights. They've gotten a little too much. They got a little too ahead of themselves. Let's get, let's cut this out. Y'all can't vote. You know what I mean? That's exactly what the the move was. Because the people who were fighting in Moran, they were fighting for the right to have a say in how they were governed. That's what it was, right? In many ways. they, Mm -hmm. They wanted everything that would allow them to be able to qualify for votes. They wanted more land. They wanted better homes. They wanted fair pay. They wanted all of the things that would allow them them to, to vote and therefore vote out the white. And so immediately yeah, what did they do? They took away the vote.
0: <laughs> understand, understand. So and and as we attain me, Yan yeah, media, let's you we forget, we're gonna make it a, a duty, you know, to tell those stories. Um or listeners love the seventies episode about nineteen seventies and Jamaica, like me hate it, me TF say me hate it. Understand, My, the whole of Michael Mall government stress me out. Edward Siaga stressed me out. Mm-hmm. Stressed me out. <laughs> them exhausting, honestly. And I understand, you have to study them to really understand Jamaica policies and where we are today. Nothing Jamaica, but the Caribbean, really. Yes. But I'm tired, all right? I said this from the first get-go, my primary interest and in studies and stuff I've worked on is before the pre-independence. Like a lot of Norman Manley stuff from from Norman Manley premiership go way back mm-hmm. <laughs> to 1834. <laughs> That's the stuff that I personally seek out and interested in about. But you ever tell me some people who work with me, they love beat me out? You understand? Because a long time I'm telling them I want to do a, a podcast about porridge and how oh, it came to rise in the 1800s and I'll be a fight, them might fight me out. But they don't know me, I'm going to make a decision about the episode.
1: You understand? Like food, is listen, food is history. Listen, so, food is history. You tell them. Tell them that it's a valid subject listen, of inquiry. Food listen, is history. You listen, <laughs> listen, kind of. see? So kind of. investigate porridge. Uh, investigate but, uh, it.
0: <laughs> but yeah um it's just a f- really great talking to you um dr Food. um really learn a lot and you have enlightened me so much about what happened in Antigua. like you have no idea like my knowledge of Antigua, like i know a bit you understand i know i look a bit my follow the pro- politics we gaston up to i know recently the minister of education he had to retire because he had to resign because of the rape um the rape allegations yeah. that came forward love that for the country and where the country is moving in. And, um, you know, the changing of 65 beaches, you know, of Antigua and Barbuda. So we know a look of something. You understand? You guys yeah. have been voted the prettiest flag for so many times. But it's fine. It's fine. We are all the faith. I understand. But um, <laughs> it's just more learn about the history of the country. And just like a great, like a great read. Honestly, if you can, please, please, please purchase um a copy of Troubling Freedom. It's a great book. I understand? Trouble Freedom, Antique and the Aftermath of British Emancipation. Like really well written and easy to digest. Like really good book. And Tell me Your you. Media will be my like, you'll we'll be getting a copy. All right? And we'll be donating to donating it to your favorite book club. You don't know. we do not for say, oh, you understand. Everybody knows favorite book club <laughs> on this podcast. So <laughs> when we as soon as that is in place, we will um we will definitely um announce that. But yeah, this is our first researchers' Cut for let's see, We forget historical podcast. So we really, 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 really love it, and we we'll hope to hopefully do more in the new in the, in the future. Um, as soon as we can get more connection with researchers, and yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you
1: so much <laughs> for having me, David. This was a lot of fun, a lot, a lot of fun. Okay, thank you,
0: Yeah, man. And and we'll all good, be safe. And we're just gonna have a usual music close you out. All right, bye guys.